Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Paul Starobin, and this is America and Beyond on the New Books Network, and I'm pleased to say that my guest today is Peter Fritchie, and we are going to be speaking about uh, the book, The Future of Nostalgia by the late uh, Svetlana Boim. And just to clear my throat a little bit, I'm going to talk just briefly about uh, Svetlana. She was born Svetlana Goldberg in 1959 in what was then uh, Leningrad and the former USSR and is now St. Petersburg. She received a bachelor's degree in Hispanic languages and literature from the Herzen State Pedagogical Institute in Leningrad. And she then tried to immigrate to the United States, but was told that if she did so, she'd never be able to return home and she would never again see her parents. Uh, After time in a refugee camp in Vienna, she arrived in the United States in 1981. Her parents, Yuri Goldberg, and the former Musi Beskin, both engineers, were repeatedly denied exit visas. Uh, she earned, Svetlana earned a master's degree in Hispanic languages and literature from Boston University, followed in 1988 by a PhD in comparative literature from Harvard. And then she went on and taught at Harvard. Uh, the Future of Nostalgia is her best known book. It was published in 2001. Um, and she wrote some others, including uh, Another Freedom, The Alternative History of an Idea, a modernist novel, Ninochka, and a play, The Woman Who Shot Lenin. And she had a sense of humor. In one of her books, she posed the question, why is it that the Soviet Union is not sending cosmonauts to the moon? Because, the answer was, there is a fear that they will emigrate. Uh-huh. Svetlana Bohm died of cancer in Boston in 2015. With me is Peter Fritchie, who is an historian and professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, He has written a number of books, including uh, Stranded in the Present, Modern Time and the Melancholy of History, 2004, Life and Death in the Third Reich, 2008, and in 2021, Hitler's First Hundred Days, When Germans Embraced the Third Reich. So welcome, Peter. We're glad to have you. Well, real pleasure. You reviewed the book when it came out, The Future of Nostalgia. What was it in that reading, which was some years ago, that captured you well i mean basically my book stranded in the present is also uh a kind of an explore historical exploration of nostalgia so that was my vein that i was exploring and um a boy is more concerned with the post-world war ii present or post-world war ii europe um but uh, identifies uh nostalgia as a as this kind of a major cultural positioning of oneself and um and does so through uh she distinguishes between uh restorative and and reflective nostalgia one is um embracing a kind of a imagined return um but the other is a more um open-ended uh sense of longing uh in many ways just to escape the present reflective and, nostalgia reflective nostalgia and along the way in the book i mean she looks at how cities evolve i mean cityscapes are are both the monuments to the old if you think about london um but they're ever changing and so many theories about the rapidity of uh change and the evanescence of memory are really actually urban based so she she um explores various cities including uh petersburg and moscow both of which uh, moscow especially has been transformed so often in the 20th century um but her best i I think her best chapters are are critical readings of authors uh in order to tease out a, a kind of uh positioning against time in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Union, which then marks, in the way we periodize, uh, the end of what's called the short 20th century. 
And so one had this sense in the early 90s that uh, there was a kind of a new time that needed to be labeled, explored, encountered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And time, of course, is so central to her writing, your writing, and she has a lot of uh, uh, ruminations on on time, which go in a lot of different directions. I wondered, though, whether you ever had the chance to meet her, to talk to her uh, in any sense, any fashion. Yeah, I mean, we had a meeting about 20 years ago, uh, other than, uh, but I don't I don't have any <clears throat> firm recollections of that. But yeah, she came to Champaign-Urbana. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was giving a giving a talk there. Right. It would have been based on that book. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered how much she was rooted in her own time. I mean, you know, how much I mean, the book of is a good example. She likes to write about is somebody who it felt to me anyway, was very much living the life of an exile, even as he spent so many years in so many places outside of Russia, it always seemed like he was coming back to that. I sort of had that sense in this book as well. There's so much personal experience involved. We have her photographs, which have her credits uh, in the book. So it strikes me as, among other things, as something of a time capsule uh, that, that captures her own experience that seemed to so powerfully influence what she came to write about nostalgia. I mean, having emigrated in the early 1980s, uh, she left as a young adult and left uh, the Soviet Union, not assuming she would really be back ever. And in 1981, of course, one could not imagine 1989. And and then suddenly, um, as she moved from dissertation to first book, uh, suddenly Eastern Europe and, and uh, the Russian Federation was was uh, completely accessible. And you could see in compressed form the enormous changes between, say, 1986 and the mid-1990s in the Soviet Union um, with, with all the various <coughs> dreamlands of reform and renewal. Um, and then Putin has sort of resolved that open-ended struggle in, in one particular way. Right. Um, and it so felt- she went through these two moments of of not being not considering that she would go back and thus being a classical exile, uh, and then being able to go back. Right. And she talks too about in the book about the Balkans uh, as being important uh, to her thinking as well. And she talks uh, uh, in her chapter on reflective nostalgia. She says in 1997, I visited a cafe in the center of Ljubljana. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, located not far from the famous Cobbler's Bridge, de- decorated by stylized freestanding columns that supported nothing. Kind of a typical detail of hers. And she ended up in a place that was called Nostalgia. So it's Nostalgia Snack Bar. There would never be a bar like that in Zagreb or Belgrade, a friend from Zagreb told me. Nostalgia is a forbidden word. Why, I asked. Isn't the government in Zagreb and Belgrade engaging precisely in nostalgia? Nope. Nostalgia is a bad word. It's associated with the former Yugoslavia. All uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, she she kind of, as she sort of ambles her way through these various lands, she manages to sort of latch onto this theme and it, and it, and it keeps her going. And nostalgia sustains her in some way. She kind of concludes the book that she has some sort of nostalgia about nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, her book is about a specific content of nostalgia. And I think that your Yugoslav example is quite good. On the one hand, there's a a Serbian nationalism (laughs) that talks about um, the restoration of Serbian rights. (laughs) that had been uh, neglected by Tito and um, had always been part of Serbian identity in the modern era. And then nostalgia for Tito or for Austro-Hungary for that uh, point, for that matter. And so those are very different kinds of political positions, about 10 to 15 percent, I think, I'm told, of people who still live, you know, who live in what was Yugoslavia identify 
as Yugoslavs and not as Serbs or Croats. Yeah. Um, and that's a very specific then, which nostalgia, which restoration, which uh, golden age do you imagine? Um, I was more interested in how we even cut up time, whatever the content. <laughs> and so, um, and so, you know, her zooming into the Balkans has has a lot to do with uh, with nineteen eighty nine and and then the terrible nineties in Yugoslavia, and those are the things that she explores to very good effect. Do you? We started. Um, in, with your mentioning uh, this, these these kind of twin concepts of restorative and reflective nostalgia, we're talking then about these two concepts, restorative and reflective nostalgia. And she kind of emphasizes, uh, on the one hand, there's the the nostos, the home, uh, in that word, and and she sees that as integral to restorative nostalgia. And then the rest of the word algia is is a sort of sense of longing and loss, which is essential to uh, reflective nostalgia. And she places quite a bit of stress on these and treats them quite differently and assigns different values to them, really. I mean, the way she concludes her book is saying that nostalgia can be both a social disease and a creative emotion, uh, a poison and a cure. The dreams of imagined homelands cannot and should not come to life. So that is restorative uh, nostalgia when she's saying that the dreams of imagined homelands cannot and should not come to life. And she had a very powerful sense of that. Um, and so what I want to ask you is whether you yourself accept her distinction. Um, I noted in your book, and I want to make sure that I get this uh, uh, correctly, of course, but you say that nostalgia... Uh, quote, provides, uh, and this is in Stranded in the Present, to lonesome strugg uh, stragglers a common refuge in history, even while it says their losses are irreversible. Uh, you want to say there can be no nostalgia without this sense of irreversibility. Nostalgia yearns for what it cannot possess. So my thought on reading that was whether you are taking issue with restorative nostalgia well restoration is uh you could see as a facsimile of something but i think it's really a reshifting of what is the subject of history and who are the subjects of history and is to re-empower them and uh i mean it depends who you are it it quickly uh veers into cultural and ethnic nationalism and a kind of wholeness, even purity, uh, that is legitimated through the past. You don't want to go back to 1850, but you want to um, you want to uh, have the kind of parameters that you imagine having applied then or in some other past. And so it's very much the restoration of the nation. And um, yeah, she thinks that's cultural poison. But if you're a Polish nationalist or a uh, Serbian nationalist, or even from the Balt uh, from the uh, Baltic countries, uh, you might see that uh, quite. You might see that differently. And the past is evidence of life. It's evidence of animation, of drama, and it can be husbanded and and nurtured. Uh, and that would be nostalgic. And it could uh, be against another kind of version of the nation. It could be against empire. There's various ways that it could work. I, I don't view it as intellectually that attractive, but um, one could view it as a subaltern position, uh, a, a position of subordinates to uh, some kind of hegemony. And that's how I interpreted uh, Germany at the beginning of the 19th century vis-a-vis -vis French empire and French civilization. So it was an act of resistance. Um, along the way, though, of course, they recreated uh, many Saito-ideals of medieval Germany, revived anti-Semitism, all sorts of uh, poisonous things. Right. But I totally agree with the ultimate distinction that longing 
and a measure and assessment of loss leads you in, in more creative uh, directions. And it is a, uh, it is a, in that sense, more um, explicit stand against the present, which formulates itself as necessary and inevitable. That's why nostalgia has a bad <coughs> connotation, because we, we assume that those people don't accept the times that they live in, and that the times we live in must be uh, adapted to and adjusted to. Otherwise, yeah. you're sort of hopelessly um, out of sync. Whereas for her, for Svetlana Boim, uh, reflective nostalgia is reconceiving the present, not least through the old dreams of the past, alternative futures that the present is foreclosed on. And so it is an argument against the present, not just the political present of an empire or particular regime, uh, but the very idea of the present and what is natural and what is inevitable. Yeah. I mean, I think for when I thought about this idea of nostalgia being a not only a social disease, which I think it's it's kind of easy to think about that. And I think we, we should talk about that and, and bring it up to the present. But to stay on the point about how she sort of insisted on it being a creative emotion, um, a poison and a, and a cure, uh, I'm not sure this great could a cure, but I think for a lot of people, the idea of nostalgia might summon up things from childhood, you know, very much in the fashion of of, of Proust and in remembrance of things past and the Madeleine and just just literally tastes and smells and sensations, that whole category of things. I mean, I spent all my childhood summers on Cape Cod and Massachusetts and even today, you know, I like to sail when I'm on the beaches or I can smell the, you know, the, the clams, like, you know, just all the, the sights, the birds and these things. And there must be, and it's very satisfying. And there, there must be a lot of nostalgia that is mixed up in these. I mean, my most, you know, my father, who is a very hardcore, you know, vocational uh, person of a physician, his most relaxed moments were with me and my brother on the clam beds in, in Cape Cod. And uh, so there again, uh, maybe there's that kind of almost sappy or sentimental nostalgia, but that nevertheless, I think for a lot of people is something that is, uh, you know, a function of their daily lives as they get older. Yeah, there's various <laughs> systems of retrieval of childhood and the old summer place uh, would be one of them. And also holidays. And the whole point of holidays is not, you know, you, you don't you don't sit back and think about, oh, last Christmas or last Thanksgiving. You think about Thanksgiving and Christmas as such. Yeah. And you don't want they're not supposed to change. And if they do, it becomes very disruptive. Same with the summer place. Um, all the summers are supposed to really meld into one. And what you do is try to keep it steady so that, in fact, one year isn't different from another year. Yes. I mean, in fact, there are these wonderful battles that families have about, you know, like how to eat the lobster or what to serve with the lobster or it, it, it could sound ridiculous. What We're not having sweet corn. I mean, it's this idea of, you know, which is mixed with the nostalgia is mixed in there that, you know, just this insistence, right. so exactly. you know. Right. And then you have to ask the wife who's who's been imported into this family what she thinks about these sweet corn and the, all that. <laughs> oh, she wants to make, you know, corn fritters or something. And that's like, you know, how can this even be imagined? Uh, but yeah, I have a good good friend who I think I'm pretty sure eats exactly the same thing uh, on a certain day of everything. Yeah, it's around, you know, one of the holiday times, Thanksgiving or, or Christmas. And it, it just simply has to has to be that way. Uh, so maybe in a sense, we, we like to and we indulge our nostalgias, which at the level we're talking about, to me, seems fairly harmless. Right. But it does talk about a congenial social organization of the family in which people's places are not questioned because behind the sweet corn is of course, you know, someone's decision that that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's a kind of um, <clears throat> um, uh, reaffirmation of a status quo to question that is to perhaps upend certain unquestioned hierarchies. I think in most 
it mostly comes through when when people uh, marry into these families. Most summer places don't last two generations. I don't know how long yours is, but <laughs> well, they, it's we very to... difficult to keep them going um, with the different. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, incomes, but different interests of people, and then they don't want to buy in or they want to be bought out. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and then there's trusts of various kinds. And, um, you know, we have a summer place, too. And um, I would never go to Cape Cod. Where is your summer place? On a fresh lake. Okay. You're going to insist on that. <laughs> yeah, we're two hours north of you on yeah. Lake Wissaki. And um, oh, that's yeah, that's a great. I know that area. That's beautiful. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, but but you know, for all the attentiveness of keeping it the same, they don't last. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to get too too little. I mean, in, in my case, we're not talking about Cape Cod. But, you know, we have there are several different places in mind, including the one we now live in. So it's not so much attachment to the particular home or piece of property, but oh, just the rhythm, the ritual. Yeah. Kind of, well, Cape Codness, what I would call it, you know, being over the bridge, you know, from, you know, mainland Massachusetts, I'm now making kind of air, air quotes, is is like a new thing. It's like you're in a new place and you have all these associations. And even if you're in, you know, one town or another town or whether you're on the bay side or on the ocean side, you know, those all figure it into wells. So these are the things I mean to get onto Svetlana. I, 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 you know, maybe I troubled, I struggled a little bit with this idea of uh, nostalgia as a, as a cure. It's much more easy to see it as a, as a poison, which I want to move on to. But the cure part, you know, I guess if it's to be soothed in some way, maybe that is curing. I'm not sure exactly that's what she, she meant by that, but but that's sort of the way, you know, it feels to me anyway. Well, a family is certainly structured by the stories it tells. And whatever those might be, um, it's nice that there is a family history, and each family is a little bit different, and and ha but has its own well-worn ways of interacting. And um, why not? That that creates comfort and unquestioning, a kind of security and trust. Not everything is constantly up for grabs. Right. It's a way of imposing a certain order that, you know, we can hope not in any kind of a bad way. And just, identity, just identity. We are. Yeah, identity is so key. And that actually, maybe we can pivot a bit to the uh, the poison side. And one of the reasons I was so interested in this book, which I, I would say is really just, you know, and every person should read kind of a book. It's 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 so prescient, you know, just for one thing. And that's it's just, just a, that's just one thing. But um, so she fastens in her chapter on restorative nostalgia, but uh, it's subtitled Conspiracies and Return to Origins. And conspiracies is just a word that is so right. speaking of the of the present uh, in so many different ways. And That's here, right. here she writes, and I'll just read a little bit of this, is that national memory reduces uh, to this memorial signs, you know, just kind of a single plot. Restorative nostalgia knows two main plots, the restoration of origins and the conspiracy theory, characteristic of the most extreme cases of contemporary nationalism fed on right-wing popular culture. The conspiratorial worldview reflects a nostalgia for a transcendental cosmology, emphasis there, this is me, on transcendental, and a simple uh, pre-modern conception of, of good and evil. Pre-modern, the conspiratorial worldview is based on a single trans-historical plot. Again, that word "plot," uh, a Manichaean battle of good and evil, and the inevitable scapegoating of the mythical enemies. Scapegoating, ambivalence, the complexity of history, the specificity of modern circumstances is thus erased, and modern history is seen as a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Home, uh, which he has in quotes. Imagine uh, extremist conspiracy theory adher adherence, they imagine, is forever under siege, requiring defense against the plotting enemy. So again, this is 2000. I just feel like th that could be like today's headline or story in the Washington Post or New York Times. I mean, it just seems so right. intense. 
Well, I mean, it would be interesting to play those sentences out in a Native American community uh, where in many ways you're resisting the specificity of the historical present in all sorts of ways. But what you've but what she describes is that you are embracing a cultural value whose value and legitimacy is based in rootedness. And um and it can't and shouldn't change. And it is the origin of one's identity and one's cultural uh, blossoming. And the only reason that it would be threatened, since it's such a assumed beautiful thing, uh, is because of criminal activity, conspiracies. And if you get rid of those criminal activities, the cosmopolitans, the Jews, the whomever, the Democrats, then you return to the uh, unblemished uh, origin. So and I think that kind of cultural thinking about collectives is indeed uh, widespread. Hmm. Yeah, so the conspiracy is, it's really not incidental. It's absolutely integral and, and necessary. In and this. the object, let's say Poland, uh, is familiar but this 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 um you know you could argue that all of these cultural collectives are always under siege in the nationalist imagination uh, they need these conspiracies uh, people are always forgetting their history um they're always forgetting their origins and it's precisely in that exhortation that you recreate um that you that you create this collective identity but in any case there is this sense that a deep historically valid collective has normative values that are now under siege by criminal activity that by uh concerted muscular action can be eliminated mm -hmm. whether it's ethnic cleansing or or you know, just lock them up or whatever, that you can get easily back to where you should be. And let me just add one more layer to this, because I think that she is also insisting on the idea that uh, the pace or the intensity of nostalgia is uh, a function to some degree on the pace of change in society and the broader culture, so that we kind of get more nostalgia or more intensified nostalgia when we have more convulsive change. And I know that's a theme that's integral as well to your stranded in the present, that this doesn't just come out of nowhere. In fact, as I understand your conception of history, it depends very much, or at least the modern conception on it was kind of invented to respond to convulsive events in the 19th century. Yeah, it's a pretty humdrum thought, but it makes sense. Um, the only thing one might add to that is if it's too convulsive, the traces of the past are eliminated. Mm. And that I find very interesting that you don't actually have markers at all. And you can't, uh, they can't be summoned up. And they don't, the, the landscape doesn't speak to you, even if it's a ruined, wrecked one. And um, it's like you, so so there's everything's new. Yeah. Well, we, then you would then you wouldn't have nostalgia because you have no markers. You have no chest of drawers yeah. where something is hidden and discovered. Right. You have no cemetery plots. Yeah. You know, in Europe they they pave over all the cemetery. No, there's no old graves in Europe. You go to New England, you go to your Cape Cod. There's lots of old graves. Oh, everywhere. Those don't exist in Europe. Yeah. I mean, I also wonder whether we could, you say there's no history, but maybe people can imagine their own. Well, system. they have other things, but they don't have cemeteries with uh, headstones from the 18th century. Yeah. So back to the sense of the change and how it, you know, it, it, it seems more convulsive. Let's get right to where we are right now in contemporary America. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, the Make American Again movement. How big is nostalgia to Trump and MAGA? Well, it, it's it's not a nostalgia that has a complicated way 
of encountering the past, that the past is fragmented, broken, must be dealt with carefully. Um, they have a much more uh, easy uh, path. The past, the past is something that just ended. And we can get back to that past if we get rid of, uh, if we take undertake strenuous action. And then we can, that's make, that's the uh, undertake uh, strenuous action. America as it was, great. Um, and and that, it's, it's problematic long. to get there because it's the result that, because it's debilitation is the result of un-American conspiracies. So it's so you, so just there's there's not an epistemological problem to get back to what they think the old America was. So this is restored. I, I don't, but I don't think it's content based, really. I I, I view this as a um, own or at least only. It certainly explains the idea that you can um, that there are conspirators and that you can get rid of them. But uh, when you think about the destruction of the social fabric in the United States, uh, some sort of nostalgic response would, would hardly be surprising. Yes. And I think this is in the category of what Svetlana Boim called uh, restorative nostalgia. It's not reflective. It's... Uh, right, but it's without being necessarily a one-to-one -one, um, recreation. But but much has been lost, and uh, um, to when, begin with, fifty years of incomes have been lost for the majority of Americans who grow up now, not really sure how their kids are going to make it. And um, at the same time, though, of course, there's much more, uh, much less geographic mobility in the United States than there used to be. Right. So that's kind of a materialist conception of nostalgia, or at least what can generate nostalgia. It can be ch changes in, in economic circumstances. Uh, so, for example, I guess where you're living or teaching is, you know, the, the enormous change in the Midwest uh, in America over the last 50 years, the so-called Rust Belt, which is one of the uh, propelling forces for MAGA and, and Donald Trump their sense of loss, uh, which is real. I mean, jobs that disappeared, uh, China as a really not m mythical, you know, enemy or, or rival or, or source of competition that where many of the jobs migrated. Uh, so, you know, it get, it can, I suppose it can get a little bit difficult when we're talking about the conspiracy theories, because it's not as if there aren't uh, real targets of of blame here right maybe that's why then the uh, cultural icons of abortion or this and that um become more uh important but there is a sense that the community behind the community family and behind that the ability of the individual to determine his or her own fate have been uh, drastically uh diminished yes many people seem to feel that uh, and now this also gets mixed in with with demographic issues and categories, racial and ethnic, men and women, the man's place no longer being what it once was, or at least what it once seemed to be in a fairly kind of unchallenged way as the primary. I mean, you know, as I start to think about this, there seems to be there's so many possibilities for nostalgia. And I suppose this is one of the reasons what you know, on social media, you're often seeing these Mormon Rockwell, you know, paintings that that right. And that's where the poison comes in. If you if, if the if the project, if the if the um, accountability of loss is then projected into these fairy tale visions of the past, one has hardly made a critical analysis of one's state. And um, and one, one's not going to go back, not least because it never was like that. I can only imagine what Svetlana one would have made of, of of Trump. I mean, I know it's always, it's, a, it's by definition, a speculative question, but it would seem to be such a rich subject for her. He is, uh, he has, he, he has the, uh, 
the chutzpah, really, to say it doesn't have to be so. I mean, forget the people who say this is inevitable and these are the rules and uh, everything's been broken. We can we 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 are gonna kick ass and and put it uh, back together in a way that we think is right. It's a yeah, and it is no. I mean, his support would be uh, less educated, uh, lower on the income, um, more rural. So maybe those aren't the places that have changed the most in America, but those are the places that had the most to lose. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder whether she or whether, well, we could just talk about this ourselves, of course, is uh, she's she's only with us in, in, in spirit. Uh, I was kind of raised or brought up or educated in the notion that America was the the future, you know, I mean, the future always occupied an important cultural space for America and whether it's, you know, Emerson never imitate or the, the nation of futurity, as I think it was called back in the 19th century and a manifest right. destiny. I mean, it was always, at least in, in myth and presentation about how we were headed towards something. And this is what essentially distinguishes us from the old country from Europe, which I do think of uh, still in some ways as kind of the, you know, at least in the Western culture or civilization, the breeding ground for nostalgia. So I wonder if in some sense, Trump and MAGA with this kind of transparent, you know, restorative nostalgia in Svetlana's terms, represents something new uh, and perhaps disturbing uh, in the American cultural landscape. I thought you were going to end your question with, aren't these then the new pioneers? <laughs> well, that's a better way to put it. Who, 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 are, you know, who are now going to uh, replow, uh, replow the land. Yeah, the pioneers are rolling, rolling backwards with their wagons. <laughs> Well, that they that they can make the future, hmm. but but to t take the premises of your question, I think the uh, for a long time we talked about the future of America as realizing its promise. People have different interpretations of that promise, but even now that um, also on the left is um, doesn't seem to hold anymore the idea of. Uh, um, <coughs> radically different presence <laughs> that, that that's not technological technology based is hard to imagine i mean utopian thinking is not very uh you know, few few people explore utopian thinking no i mean with climate change i mean it's right and sometimes with progressive it can sometimes be hard to identify exactly what where, where, where is the progress in in that word right exactly Right, and maybe Trump supporters have 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 a similar idea that all these progressive ideas are not also uh, bringing them the good 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 right. society. But I would also say, I mean, I wonder what you think. Is that do the Democrats and Republicans, in some sense, res, uh, embrace competing uh, notions or visions of nostalgia? I think for many Democrats, it's FDR, it's the period of the New Deal, it's it's. Uh, what we were able to do. There's only, you know, to fear is the, you, is the only thing to, to fear, to move on, such a period, inventive period. Whereas for the Republicans, the nostalgia seems to be more oriented around sort of cultural uh, pre-60s uh, values uh, involving, you know, how the households were organized and work and things like that. So um, maybe... Uh, that's a little bit where we are that the the nostalgias are, are kind of competing because nobody seems to like the present very much right and uh it doesn't get beyond fdr right sometimes a little bit of johnson gets mixed in for the great society but yeah basically maybe a little bit of kennedy here and there kennedy nostalgia i think we could have a whole nother discussion about but uh it seems to well kind that of crosses both sides doesn't it and what do you what do you mean? Well, I was just in a small town in Illinois, and I I don't you know I can't say how it votes, but at the diner they had a picture of Jackie O up. Oh, and I don't know, maybe it was a maybe it was a union union family, but I, but in any case, I I agree with you. I think um, we we don't have a very well defined sense of the future tense, which is seen as with a great deal of foreboding. 
And the events of the last 20 years have only confirmed that. And um, one I mean, one marches into the future uh, with a lot of anxiety. One could see nostalgia also as well in the idea of the greatest generation. I mean, when Tom Brokaw, I believe it was, wrote that that book, it, it just hit such a powerful nerve among the readers of a certain generation. And there are certain wars that we feel, I guess only one, actually, that we have. Yeah, only one. Nostalgia no, I, I think that, well, I think the, the, the public for the greatest generation was the kids, not the protagonists. Uh, but um, but it was a virtuous war. You know, there was very little nostalgia in the 1940s when, when one-fifth of the population moved in the United States. It was an extremely mobile time. People were getting out of the Great Depression. There was a lot of anxiety about race, though. Yes. I mean, that's really the ongoing story in America is what who belongs, who does not. It's the same old story. And um, and people on the right are, are much more willing to draw very clear ethnic markers there. Yeah. Religious, I, ethnic, and racial markers. Yeah, groups in American society that basically have nothing to feel nostalgic about. And yet, and yet Trump's support is strongest in homogenous districts rather than heterogeneous ones. So it's it's very complicated. There's a lot of projection, a lot, a lot of, of imagination. But I think nostalgia, I think the value of nostalgia is to critique the present. It's, it's one basis of critiquing the present without without um giving in to the idea that everything in the present is inevitable in terms of economies of scale or technology or interpersonal relations. Um, now, what you're critiquing and what you're wanting, of course, some is poison, some is not. But it is a way of creating an alternative sense of yourself in the present. And it resists the idea of what I call the eternal present, that there's nothing except right now, and it's really not going to change. I mean, can nostalgia make people feel hopeful in a good way? I compare ruin sometimes to half-life rather than death and right. destruction and it's forever gone. It's a half-life. They've survived all this time. And, um, and in that sense, the very fact of survival is hopeful. But does it help us in terms of progress by some definition in terms of getting to a new place? A uh, different place. I see. D new is not necessarily good. Right. At some point, you know, we seem to be more gripped by the future in any case. You know, sending right. Very much so, yeah. Space program and tremendous excitement. Uh, now, I don't hear that. I mean, Elon Musk talks about people going to Mars some days. I don't hear that as an everyday kind of a conversation. It doesn't seem like it's playing out that way it doesn't seem to hit the popular uh imagination uh, but i mean from my perspective i mean i'm i'm your normal left liberal professor um i view the future with a tremendous foreboding foreboding oh yeah i i'm very scared for my either seven year old 12 year old very very worried for them uh, on what grounds how they're going to make it hmm in the economy um and in in uh, what what is what is uh required of them to go through life uh in terms of getting a job um getting skills and constantly changing them constantly being adaptable constantly adjusting uh very different from the way i grew up right yeah, I mean, not to speak of climate change, not to speak of artificial intelligence. Yes, climate change is is sort of the existential angst issue, or one of them. And I sometimes, when I think about these things, of course, I'm only you know, I'm, I'll be sixty six in in August. Uh, when I start thinking about some of those issues, I kind of pine for nostalgia. It seems yes, more absolutely. I guess At least I, those were the problems were manageable uh in in a sense that they that they are not uh today yeah 
And I think for Svetlana, I mean, she was, I mean, obviously she was not nostalgic for the Soviet Union, uh, but she was just very well aware of how just wherever you're from, wherever you've grown up can exert such a strong pull on you. And I think she did feel that, that sense of, of, of pull as well. Uh, right. And she was respectful of the, uh, of, of people's fear of the dissolution that occurred in the first 10 years of uh, post-Soviet, of the post-Soviet world where mortality rates leaped up and standards of living declined. I mean, it was a terrible time in Eastern Europe. Yes. I think that's an important point because I think in the West, it's generally just not well understood that they thought, oh, well, this, this land behind the Iron Curtain is essentially... No, no longer and only you know the, the freedom and free markets and prosperity beckons so you know the simple story but i think conveyed generally at least in the in the mainstream press so uh people don't quite understand you know how it could kind of boomerang and now we come back with with you know the russia of vladimir putin which in some ways i see as a reaction to to that i lived in moscow in the first four years of the Putin time and and people you know talk very disparagingly about both uh, Boris Yeltsin and also about Mikhail Gorbachev who was one of the heroes of the West. Putin was seen as a you know he would restore order. I don't know if he was a nostalgic figure. That's actually something to think about. But um, you know his his thinking about a, a KGB you know re reinstituted order uh, an exercise in nostalgia. Yeah, I mean that's just the thing is 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 reasserting a geopolitical prominence that's um, within living memory, nostalgic. Uh, probably not. I think in Ukraine the war. I hadn't thought about this a whole lot, but from a certain Russian perspective, I would say from the perspective of the sort of Moscow-centered imperial class. It's an absolute exercise in restorative nostalgia, and not just an exercise. I mean, you know, I mean, invasion. It's 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 blood and guts. Uh, they used to call Ukraine uh, Malorossiya, little little Russia, and you know, uh, the the effort, at least in the beginning, was to restore the order of things, where Ukraine would belong to Russia and. Uh, Kiev would be subservient to Moscow as it was for centuries. That's well, yeah, like I mean, is restore the is restore the right verb because um, the assumption is that Ukrainians are Russian, right? Uh, the assumption is that Ukrainians are part of Ruski Mir, Russia world, which can allow for sort of non-Russians, but very much part of, I think the Orthodox aspect of it is important too. I mean, the Moscow Orthodox Church, which Putin has embraced. So yeah, I would say Russian world, but but yes, um, umbilically attached to Russia because Kiev was where Russia, where Rus was back. Right, exactly. And then, you know, you have Sevastopol and you have the World War II battlefields. Yes, all of I that. mean, what are the World War II battlefields aside from Leningrad? They're all there. Where it's all taking place now. Most of the, well, Stalingrad and uh, but yes, Stalingrad, yeah, yeah. Well, Kharkiv, the river Kharkov, a Kharkiv was was a site of. Yeah, but they all sound familiar, don't they, Rostov? They do. One of the things that really helped me think about um, placement, whether it's in time or left right, is you know the Nazis. Everyone thinks of them as right wing. The Nazis never thought of themselves as right wing. And were very, very upset when they were placed on the right wing side of the parliament. And um, they thought, if anything, uh, well, they, they didn't think that they were either left or right, and certainly not center either. Their view was surface depth. And what they wanted to retrieve was a depth of Germany. Mm -hmm. It could be retrieved. And it was there. And and what was at, at at the moment was superficial, but could easily be gotten rid of, and that that corrective. I mean, that image has its own problems, but that corrective really helped me under uh, try to understand how they thought of themselves among the other political protagonists, 
And I think nostalgia in some ways works that way as well. It's a surface depth thing. Yeah. Well, they, I guess they call them national socialists. Maybe they took that term, you know, socialists in, in some way, although they were obviously opposed well, to socialism. Was simply collective responsibility of the yeah. community and the race. That was. Right. Yeah. But maybe not an obvious, you know, right wing way of, you know, at least how, as we now think about the right wing. Uh but yeah, well, they hated the right wing and they had to destroy the right wing. Those were the first enemies that they destroyed. Yeah. Uh, in elections. They did it in elections. But um, that the, the, that was how they came to power by destroying the right. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, to me, the, one of the great virtues of the book is that she's able, Svetlana is able, you know, to show in the future of nostalgia that it really does have a future, uh, a kind of a continuing future and it may be brighter than ever uh i don't know i mean that's something that we just you know maybe sometimes things turn in a way that we don't but do you have any thoughts um as we as we wrap up on whether the future of nostalgia is truly bright or can you think of ways in which perhaps we do kind of get 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 past it so to speak well, I'm your age, so um, I, I don't think things have gotten particularly better. <laughs> okay. And in many ways, uh, they've deteriorated. And I, I think our ability to determine events and to determine uh, the environment around us has diminished enormously. Um, I, I, I very much worry, and I think that the... Uh, and my worry is, is that we don't notice hmm. what we've lost nostalgia presumes we do notice in fact we're obsessed with that which we've taken notice of but play it the other way around this is the best of all possible worlds today that's a nightmare hmm. right this idea of the eternal present so at least nostalgia has a kind of uh resistance and in that sense, it will be resilient. Right. Okay. And on that note, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Peter Fritsche. And uh, thank you for being on America and Beyond with Paul Starobin. And we hope to see you again. Thank you. Okay. You take care. Thank you. Okay.